You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann famously says that as far as the Bible is concerned, any pharaoh is just a pharaoh. Genesis and Exodus don't take any time to distinguish at all between the Hoteps and the Ramesses and the Tutankhamuns. Once you've seen one pharaoh, you've seen them all. The New Testament tends to do the same with Herod's. Whether it's the Herod ordering the slaughter of the innocents, or the one Jesus taunts with his sayings about unfinished towers, or the one who executes John the Baptist, with few exceptions, they're all just Herod. Bruce Chilton wants us to take a closer look, though. In his new book, The Herod's Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession, from Fortress Press, he explores not only the complexity and the weirdness within the Herod family, and it's a weird family, but the relationships of violence and sex and worship and paranoia that developed between this unbelievable Idumean family and some of the world's power players of the day. Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome Bruce back to the show. Thank you for joining us again, Bruce. It's my pleasure, Nathan. Before we get to Herod or to his father, Antipater, we should set the stage in terms of Second Temple Judaism. These are the strange days of the Maccabees, who are at the same time fierce adversaries of the Hellenizing Seleucids, and also a dynasty that is eager to Hellenize Palestine itself in order to make it one kingdom rather than a patchwork of disparate territories. How does all of this fit together? I think the key to the apparently contradictory character of the Maccabees is that they are truly in origin a resistance movement. Uh, They opposed the attempt of the king of the Seleucids to convert the worship in the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus. He also attempted to prohibit the practice of the Torah and he did so by brutal means. The Maccabees were a family of priests who rose up in protest and who were able to deploy enormously successful guerrilla tactics and also their ideology of martyrdom to achieve extraordinary victories against the Seleucids. Over the long term, however, in order to insist upon their victory and to remain in power, the Maccabees had to co-opt the very methods of the Seleucids whom they had opposed. They used many of their same military techniques, hired some of the same mercenaries, and also discovered the advantages of using the Greek language. Uh, As a result of that, there is an apparently ambivalent character within the Maccabean regime, but it makes sense in terms of their strategic aims. And I I always found it odd. I mean, I I still remember this from 20 years ago that, uh, you know, this uh, anti-Seleucid family rises up and, you know, wages a guerrilla insurgent war uh, against the Greek occupiers. And then within a couple generations, the chief priest of Jerusalem is called Jason. And I thought that that shouldn't be how that is. Exactly. That's an example of how much they actually absorbed Hellenistic culture in order to achieve hegemony. Bear in mind that they wound up conquering more land than David and Solomon had. It was the largest extent of Israel in all of history by the end of the second century before the Common Era. And one of those territories that they conquered uh, was the kingdom of Edom, which we might remember, you know, as the uh, the kingdom that, you know, according to the, the etiology of Genesis, uh, was descended from Esau, brother of Jacob, uh, and who was, you know, one of the one of the fierce enemies of Israel in Judges. Uh, but by this period, they are ritually and in some sense politically Judean, uh, even though that they are ancestrally Edomite. So I know I just posed this question, but how do those parts fit together? 
they fit together because, as you say, the Maccabees were able to extend their power into the lands of what came to be called in the Greek language, Idumea, which directly comes from Edom. By the time that the Maccabees had done so, the Idumeans themselves had been seriously weakened by a whole series of imperial incursions. They were basically a collection of chiefdoms rather than a centralized country. Also, to some extent, the Idumeans themselves remembered a certain relationship with Israel. They appear not to have been very reluctant about the conversion to Judaism that came with the Maccabean onslaught. So that by the time that Herod the Great was born, he himself was a circumcised Jew. His family had long been serving the Maccabees uh, because his family, led when he was born by the Idumean chief Antipater, was extremely valuable to the Maccabees in order to hold on to their hegemony. And so, I mean, when, you know, when I teach a Sunday school class, for instance, on the book of Acts, I can talk about the people of the region called Judea as definitely Judean, the people of Macedonia and Rome as definitely not Judean, and then Samaritans as just Judean enough to make people really angry. So, I mean, where do the Idumeans and the Galileans fit into that picture? Are they more like Samaritans? Are they more like Judeans? Where do they fit in that puzzle? Yeah, really, the Idumeans and the Galileans uh, are more like one another than they are like the Samaritans. Uh, the reason for the deep antip antipathy between Judeans and Samaritans is that, after all, the Samaritans had established an alternative form of worship, their own understanding of what exactly the law of Moses was. And this was understood within Judaism to be a direct challenge, and they reacted in kind. On the other hand, the people who lived in Galilee uh, had been mixed by groups which had come in over the centuries, some of them forcefully. And the people of Idumea had arrived where they did as a result of various kinds of imperial pressure, as I explained. So they were indeed converted to Judaism, but once that conversion had taken place and had settled in for a generation or two, then by the ordinary understanding of the Torah, they indeed belonged within Judaism. All right, and, and one more question, because you know now that we've got all these pieces in the puzzle, uh, how did all of those groups relate to, I mean, what I've read about as diaspora Judaism? So Chaldean Jews, Egyptian Jews, Roman Jews. Again, would they have been more like Galileans, more like Judeans, more like Samaritans? Where do they fit in that puzzle? Because the, the impression that I get is these are the communities that are going to play into the story later on when Rome starts to inflict violence on Judeans, it's not just in the region called Judea, but it's in these other places in these diaspora communities as well. That is exactly the case, because from the point of view of Rome, what they're dealing with is what they call the uh, nation of the Judeans. That is, they understand that the practice of Judaism makes those who are engaged in that religion different from those of Rome, that they are not in a position to recognize the gods of Rome. And over the course of time, when the empire emerges, they are not in any position to recognize the alleged divinity of the emperor. They also follow practices considered by the Romans not to be civilized, such as male circumcision, not eating pork, not working on the Sabbath. And the result of that is the development of a Roman anti-Semitic literature. Nonetheless, 
Jews living within the Mediterranean basin are remarkably successful at getting the Romans to acknowledge that while they are different, they are also to be tolerated. And this goes back to a time, in fact, when the Rome as a republic had entered into a treaty of mutual alliance with the Maccabees. Once they had done that, Rome was accepting the legal standing of the practice of Judaism. That became the precedent on which it was possible for Judaism to be practiced within, at first, the Roman Republic, and then later on, the Roman Empire, which actually comes into existence during the period of the Herodians. So now that we're talking about uh, that transition from the Roman Republic into whatever comes in between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, let's talk a little bit about the first triumvirate. Now, these are characters that come into my imagination and my memory from Shakespeare and Dante as much as from Lucan and Livy. And the history of the Herods, on the other hand, I've gotten mainly from New Testament texts and an occasional foray into Josephus. What I didn't know is just how involved Antipater, the father of Herod, was involved in the war between Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar. So tell that story of how Antipater becomes Julius Caesar's ethnarch. Yeah, this is a pivotal moment, the time when you could say the Herodian dynasty really came into existence uh, because Julius Caesar was very much in military need. Uh, he was in conflict with Pompey, the much greater general from the point of view of reputation, met him at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BCE. And to everyone's astonishment, including Julius Caesar's, Caesar won. Pompey then had to flee. He fled to Egypt. Uh, in Egypt, uh, there were two reigning royal figures, a brother named Ptolemy and a sister named Cleopatra. Ptolemy's forces thought to do Caesar a favor by presenting him with the head of Pompey. This disgusted Caesar, he said, and I think also has to be mentioned, he was almost immediately interested in Ptolemy's sister, Cleopatra. And so Caesar had to engage in a new war on Egyptian territory in opposition to the forces of Ptolemy. He, by this stage, was short of troops. His army had already been smaller than Pompey's at Pharsalus. And then by the time that he got to Egypt, he was stretched very thin. As a result, Antipater came from Idumea with his cavalry in order to assist Caesar. And it was in recognition of this that Caesar decided that he would keep Antipater in power as being the major military figure over the area of Judea, side by side with the high priest whom Antipater already served, namely Hyrcanus. And that was the beginning of the Roman settlement of Judea. And so as we get into this uh, dynasty, I mean, I, I just kept thinking of Shakespeare and as I read about the young Herod's masterful horsemanship, his impulsive political style, his phenomenal luck, frankly, I couldn't help but think about Prince Hal from Shakespeare's Henriad plays. And if you let young Herod be Hal, it seems that Hezekiah the Bandit King is his hotspur. So how does this war against Hezekiah in Galilee set up Herod's rise to prominence and to the diadem? The reason for the significance of that war is that by means of defeating Hezekiah, uh, Herod is able to assure that within the region of Galilee, Roman power was firmly ensconced. In doing that, he 
put himself in the good graces of the cousin of Julius Caesar, Sextus Caesar, who was the governor of Syria. At the same time, Herod drew glory to himself, which he was in some need of, because he was Antipater's second son. The older son was Phasael. As a result, he pressed his advantage against Hezekiah all the more fiercely, using his extraordinary gifts of horsemanship in order to defeat a guerrilla army, which is ordinarily very difficult. And in succeeding, he immediately proceeded to execute Hezekiah in order to demonstrate his dominance. In doing so, he won the antipathy of the Council of Jerusalem, known as the Sanhedrin, which was not only the managing committee of the temple, but also the center for the interpretation of law, at least in their own understanding. And they held it that they alone were authorized to decide who should be and who should not be executed, leading to an early friction with the Sanhedrin that characterized the whole of Herod the Great's reign. So that's one moment. And then another moment comes. And again, I mean, this story is, is just so uh, operatic that it, it's hard to believe that, that these things actually happen. But at this point, Hyrcanus uh, assassinates Antipater. And Herod, I mean, although he is impulsive, although he is fiery, I think at this point, I mean, I would say this is when he becomes a Roman because he doesn't raise up an army and invade Jerusalem. He doesn't lay siege to the city, but instead he resorts to murder. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's my, uh, you know, uh, Shakespearean bias here that I think of murder as an especially Roman game. Uh, but how do those things unfold? And at this point, how does Cassius, who again, I think of as a Shakespeare character, get involved in this succession between Antipater and Herod and between, you know, Julius Caesar and, you know, what comes after Julius Caesar? Well, of course, Cassius is central to what comes after Julius Caesar since he helped make the after, right? He is indeed one of the conspirators. Yep, he was holding one of the daggers. (laughs) Exactly, in 44 BCE. He had already been on the ground in Syria as governor there, but uh, he acquired more power in the wake of Caesar's assassination. And so he became the Roman authority whom Antipater and his two sons especially had to please. I say his two sons because Antipater had very generously divided up the realm of Judea so that His older son, Phasael, had responsibility for Jerusalem, and Herod had responsibility for Galilee. That was what enabled uh, Herod to have his debut as a military leader in Galilee. But the assassination of Julius Caesar was destabilizing not only in Rome, but also throughout Rome's territory, because it it raised the possibility that from within Judea, one might seek to make alliance with another power. And what was going on within the court of Hyrcanus is that an alliance was being devised with Parthia, a rising power to the east. And in particular, Hyrcanus had an advisor whose name was Malichus, who decided the best way forward was to eliminate Antipater and then make alliance with the Parthians. The hope was, in this whole gambit, to enable Hyrcanus again to emerge as a true Maccabee, that is, not only with high priestly power, but also with 
military power. As a consequence, uh, Malachus put on a banquet for Antipater, and during the course of the banquet, used the very Roman means of poisoning Antipater and killing him at the time. The description of the uh, symptoms involved uh, suggests that the poison used is known today as deadly nightshade, uh, used elsewhere within Roman intrigues. So as you say, the immediate response of Herod, given his temperament, is to think that they should go and attack directly at the very hub of the power of Malichus and Hyrcanus, namely Jerusalem. But he doesn't go that way. He is held back then, as he is on other occasions, by Fazael, and so accepts the support of Cassius in a plot to kill uh, his enemy by inviting him to the city of Tyre. And then uh, in Tyre, Malichus thinks he's meeting a delegation of Roman officers. In fact, they're meeting him with daggers and they dispatch him much as Julius Caesar had been dispatched on the Ides of March. And this is only a short time after that assassination. So it shows you the way in which there's a kind of echo effect, what happens in the capital, what happens elsewhere within Rome's domain. And listeners, if you're keeping score, at this point, the Herodians have backed Julius Caesar, then they have backed Cassius, now, in the next episode, they're going to back Mark Antony. They've got this string of alliances that end up on the wrong side, and yet they keep coming out ahead. But let's let's talk about one episode that I was just too fascinated by to fly over here. Uh, what is our source for Cleopatra's attempt to seduce Herod the Great? Uh, and please tell me it's true, because this might be the grandest of all the Shakespeare New Testament crossovers in this whole story. It, it is surprising how prominent Cleopatra is as an intriguer involving Herod the Great. And on two occasions, the historian Josephus claims that Cleopatra attempted to seduce Herod. Now I must say the first occasion that Josephus mentions in this regard does not sound plausible to me because at that stage, he was in the wake of a major onslaught by a Maccabean pretender making his way to Rome in an attempt to be crowned king. And he had really nothing directly to offer Cleopatra that would make her do that. For Cleopatra, as for many, many figures in this entire history, sex is not an impulse by itself. It is very much combined with the desire for power and influence and alliance. However, on the second occasion Josephus speaks of this, uh, he refers to someone who was an historical source for him named Nicholas of Damascus. And in that context, it's within the setting that Herod has become the fast friend of Antony, as he was, as you say, uh, earlier the supporter of other Roman figures. And this is indeed a pattern all the way through the Herodian dynasty. They were fiercely loyal to the Roman who was in power for as long as that person was in power. Uh, it's interesting, for example, that after Antony was defeated, and you might have thought that Octavian, Antony's enemy, would therefore take against Herod. Herod this is what would happen in a Godfather movie. It, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Herod goes and sees Octavian on the Isle of Rhodes and says to him, do not consider whose friend I have been, but what a friend I have been. That is, 
the Herodian dynasty is built upon loyalty and sometimes loyalty of a nature that's sealed by sexuality. Cleopatra is attempting to lure Herod from Antony, and by the way, Antony from Herod, and she was also trying, after Herod became king, and was made king by the Romans, in particular by Antony along with Octavian, she wishes to acquire some of his territory. So he understands very clearly the kind of influence that she is trying to wield uh, as she famously attempts to seduce him. Nicholas of Damascus makes the claim that Herod refused the opportunity, which is not exactly consistent with his practice otherwise, since he had 10 wives, as far as anyone can count. But we shall never know how far this attempted seduction went. That it was attempted, however, is, I think, a matter of historical fact. That is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, once again, uh, you keep mentioning this, and I think our listeners need to dwell on it, that, you know, this will become important, you know, at several points in this story that, uh, you know, the games of sexual politics are games of sexual politics. Uh, you know, uh, it's not simply an instrumental quid pro quo exchange, but it's also not something that they're doing on the side. They are intertwined in ways that seem somehow familiar in the 21st century. And yet in other ways, I mean, they are, uh, you know, very, very alien. It is a different world in which the understanding is that power politics is very often sealed by marriage or by sexual liaison. For example, in the same period, Antony and Cleopatra begin jointly to rule in Egypt. Now, Antony was already married and indeed had been married to the sister of Octavian. This is one of the major reasons why that second triumvirate of Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus broke up. But in Antony's mind, he's able to unite himself with the authority of the Pharaoh by his liaison with Cleopatra. He cannot actually marry her because she's not Roman. But he is able publicly to display himself with her, including on coins which we, and medals, which, was, which is why we know about this. Now, it's, I have a side question, because part of Octavian's propaganda against Antony is that he was setting himself up as a king in Egypt, and Romans do not have kings. And yet, as you just mentioned, uh, Octavian and Antony named Herod king of the Jews in front of the Roman Senate. So was this a situation where the barbarians could have kings, but Romans must never have kings? Or was the dynamic something different? Yeah, that's a very good observation. Uh, the barbarians did indeed have kings. And one of the interesting negotiations of emerging centralized power in Rome is the extent to which the claims of royalty in the East would be taken up into the propaganda of Rome. So uh, Octavian himself, when made emperor, will be called Augustus, but he will not be named king. Uh, he will claim to have his power uh, in association with the Senate. At the same time, uh, during the period of imperial Rome, the idea that the emperor should be viewed as having something at least of the character of divinity becomes increasingly widespread uh, to the point that at times uh, there could be a requirement that one would offer obeisance to the emperor and to his alleged 
genius by pouring out wine before his image and burning incense. So Rome is conflicted about the extent to which it will absorb the royal traditions of the East. In this, I think it is clear that Antony was ahead of the curve and therefore Octavian was able to use that against Antony. Uh, he, he, Octavian also claimed that he had access to the will of Antony, which Octavian should not have had access to since it was held in private custody. But as a result of that, the claim was established that he was Antony was attempting to establish a hereditary either kingship or crypto kingship over Rome. And that propaganda was extremely successful in its own time and also thereafter. We could talk about this generation of Herods, I mean, for a long time. And readers, we have barely scratched the surface of what this book goes into. So you need to go out and read this book. But I do want to move on to the two Samaritan sons of Herod the Great, uh, Archelaus and Antipas. The one thing that I knew about the reign of Archelaus from the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew is that he was so nasty that Herod the Great, the killer of infants, didn't keep Joseph out of Bethlehem. But when they were coming back from Egypt, he heard Archelaus was there and he wouldn't go back. So what was so bad about this junior Herod that Augustus puts the butcher Pontius Pilate in his place? Yeah, that I think is, is one of the telling marks of how bad and cruel a ruler Archelaus truly was, uh, because he had been named uh, by Herod the Great in his will. Uh, Herod died in four before the Common Era. As the son who was to inherit Judea with the title of king. This came to a man who was quite inexperienced and who also came with a degree of insecurity. Uh, Archelaus was the product, along with Antipas, of the marriage between Herod the Great and Malthake, who came from Samaria. Now, we have already discussed the tensions between Samaritans and Judeans. In face of that, Archelaus attempted to portray himself as someone who should be authoritative over the temple. And in so doing, he at first attempted to negotiate with those who wanted to define Herodian authority in a restricted way, but ultimately, used violence against them and is reported to have killed 3,000 pilgrims who had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. In addition, he engaged in genocidal policies uh, in and around Jericho for the simple reason that he wanted to extend the royal Herodian compound there. And his habit of getting more authority from Rome and then inflicting further violence in Judea is so well known in the first century that Jesus tells a parable that alludes to it in Luke chapter 19, when he speaks of a king who left his subjects to get kingship. Archelaus had done just that in an attempt to get that from Augustus and then returned in order to inflict yet more senseless violence. This is the Herodian who was the most senselessly cruel of the entire dynasty. And his dates are actually correspond to near the time of the birth of Jesus. 
Herod the Great, as I mentioned, died in four before the Common Era, too early to be the Herod of the story of the slaughter of the innocents. Archelaus himself was removed by power, from power, as you said, by the emperor in the year six. And after that, instead of rule by client kings like Herod the Great, Judea proper was governed by an appointee from Rome. As I was reading this book, the story of John the Baptist's death from the Gospel of Mark was our lectionary text one Sunday. And both the children's sermon and the main homily treated Herod Antipas, who is the other Samaritan son of Herod the Great, as a creature of excessive appetite, desiring his brother's wife as characters in a soap opera might do. But Rome was involved here in some pretty serious ways so that, as we talked about before, it was always sex and power. It was never one or the other. So what was going on with Herod's granddaughter and the Praetorian Sejanus, who is a character in a Ben Jonson play because everything reminds me of the 17th century, and Antipas's niece and Antipas's wife. And how is it that three of the four of these are the same person, or are they? Yeah, your question illustrates, I think, the way in which the number of names can be confusing. But one of uh, my Uh, guiding goals has been to explain how each of these characters relates to the others and what motivates them, what gives them a through line of action. So in the case of Antipas, he was named to a sub-territory of the larger kingdom of Judea to Galilee by Herod the Great's will, so that he took that over in 4 BC. And despite all of the extraordinary violence that attended the end of Archelaus' reign, Antipas held on to Galilee until a much later period. All the way through that period, he was guided by a desire to inherit the whole of the Herodian legacy. He wanted to be king, and he wanted to be king of the greater Judea. In order to do that, he decided that he would use the well-proven method of a suitable marriage. And during the period in which he did that, he was constantly currying favor with the new emperor, namely Tiberius, who himself had been involved in extending his power by means of marriage. And so Antipas decided to marry Herodias, a woman who, as you say, uh, had been the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And she was descended from Herod the Great's Maccabean wife, Mariamne. Now, Herod the Great always had a fraught relationship with the Maccabees. Remember, the Maccabees had actually hired Antipater, but then it turned out that Herod, once named as king, appeared to eclipse them. But he always sought the legitimacy of the Maccabean background. As a result of that, he had married Mariamne. But then Mariamne became suspect in his eyes And ultimately, he had her executed. And he'd also killed two sons of Mariamne. Who are also his own sons, let's remind the listeners. Exactly, also his own sons. Better his pig than his son, as Augustus said. Augustus said, I'd rather be a pig than his son, yeah. And it was one, the only joke ever known uh, told by Augustus. And he told it for a reason. So this Herodias descended from Maccabees as well as from the Herodian Idumean line seems appropriate to Antipas as a way of shoring up his claim to be able to rule the whole of Judea. 
there are problems in this project. One is he was already married and Herodias insisted he should get rid of his first wife, which he did to great pain to himself. The other was, of course, that she was related to him and also had been married, had been married to another one of his brothers. This is why John the Baptist criticized the marriage. And Antipas understands very well that if you criticize the marriage, you are criticizing the legitimacy of rule. And so he has John the Baptist beheaded. For the same reason, he attempts at a later stage to hunt Jesus down because he understands very well that Jesus is the disciple of John the Baptist. Religion and politics are understood in this period to go hand in hand. Now, another difficulty that Antipas has to face is that although he had been currying favor with Tiberius, as I mentioned, in the year 26, Tiberius retired from Rome to live in Capri. And management of the empire largely fell to Sejanus, the head of the Praetorian Guard, and a known anti-Semite. He appointed Pontius Pilate in the year 26, in the same year that the Emperor Tiberius withdrew from Rome. Pilate performed according to plan. He went in and in an act designed to provoke opposition, he made a military display near the temple of the images of Rome, which of course had to be considered idolatrous from the perspective of Judaism. One of those who heroically protested what Pilate did was Antipas. Uh, at the same time, he was making these alliances by means of marriage in the Roman way. He was also pursuing the concept that as a Herodian ruler, he was the legitimate protector of the temple and of Judaism. And those tensions between attempts to curry favor with whoever is supreme in Rome and also to be loyal somehow to Jerusalem and to whatever they think Jerusalem stands for is part of what makes this so fascinating. And once again, listeners, I mean, we have not remotely exhausted the stories of that generation of Herodians, but there are more New Testament Herods and one of them, Agrippa II, uh, the nephew of Herodias and the great-grandson of the Maccabean Marianne, who we've talked about before, and of Herod, and at this point, related to other people in ways that I just can't keep straight because this family tree is maddening. But what's important about him is that he appears in Acts uh, in an encounter with St. Paul, and I want you to tell our listeners about how that incident is related to the rising tide of anti-Judean rage that is really, you know, not just limited to anti-Semites like Sejanus, but is becoming, at the very least, widespread in the city of Rome. Uh, how is Agrippa II related to that hatred against Judeans? Agrippa II, I suggest, in his intervention in regard to the trial of Paul, shows a great deal of wisdom in attempting to bring down the volume of violent opposition, not only to Judaism, but violent opposition within Judaism. Uh, one of the issues from the point of view of Rome, of how to deal with an entity namely Judaism, which has as a central tenant the idea that you cannot do what other Roman citizens and subjects do, was always fraught. And one attempt 
to cope with this situation was to attempt to play good guys and bad guys within the field of Judaism and to, and to argue that there were certain kinds of Jews who were obviously opposed to Rome. And sometimes in an attempt to deal with such groups, Rome itself could become irrational. Uh, the clearest example of this is the emperor Caligula, who wanted to set up a statue of himself inside the temple, which even Roman historians acknowledge would have provoked enormous violence. One of those who strongly counseled Caligula not to do that was the father of Agrippa II, Agrippa I. But while he was doing that, Agrippa I was also, and we know this from the book of Acts, pursuing a policy very much like the policy of the next emperor, Claudius, namely deliberately targeting followers of Jesus as being a source of potential violence. That will no doubt seem extremely odd to us because of the current understanding of Christianity, but in the time when Christian teachers openly proclaimed, as some of them did, the end of the world and the complete disjuncture of the powers of this age from the just rule of God as king, that was seen as revolutionary and subversive by some. So that sporadic prosecution of Christians under Claudius and under Agrippa I took place. That's the context in which Agrippa II's intervention in the case of Paul is so interesting uh, because he is presented within the book of Acts during this section in uh, chapters 25 and 26 as being knowledgeable, not only about the case, but also of Jewish law, of Paul's position. And he ultimately gives his own view that Paul had done nothing of a criminal nature. So here we have an exception, a strong exception to the rule that Herodians are portrayed in a negative light. And that also helps us to explain why there are allusions elsewhere within the New Testament to favorable relationships within the Herodian court, because it seems that this represented more the position of Agrippa II and of his sister Berenike, who was with him in the description of Acts at Paul's meeting with the Roman procurator. And let's talk about Berenike for a moment, because I'll confess, until I read your book, I did not realize she was also a Herodian. Uh, she, she was just a name who appeared in that scene, and I, I'll confess, I flew right by it. Uh, but when I read, you know, the chapter on Berenike, I mean, she is an utterly dizzying mix of sexual politics and ascetic devotion, which I didn't expect. And what I did expect was the kinds of political know-how that seems to run through this Herodian dynasty all the way from Antipater. So who is Berenike? And, uh, you know, why should our readers pay better attention to Berenike? She is an astonishing figure, even by the standards of the Herodian dynasty, which is saying a great deal. Because from many points of view, she should not have exerted any sort of influence. And yet, uh, by the end of the first century, she was the one who had come closest to making a permanent impact on the Roman Empire. Her background was simply really as a pawn for her father, Agrippa I, who had married her off as a young teenager to a, a very wealthy man from Alexandria. And then when he died, he married her off to his own brother. You see this pattern of Herodian marriages? Uh, 
And subsequently, uh, the rumor began to swirl that she was in an incestuous relationship with her brother, with Agrippa II. And in fact, this became such a matter of common gossip that the Roman poet Juvenal wrote about it in one of his satires. She, for a brief period of time, attempted to break uh, the word of the incest by marrying someone else, Polemo, the king of Cilicia, but then she quickly left him and returned to Agrippa. But here, I think, the attraction was not sexual. Here, the attraction was power. She understood herself to be in a position to be able to fulfill the Herodian ambition. But how could she possibly think that? It's because of what's happening in Jerusalem. You have mentioned the rising tide of violence. Increasingly, there are factions within Judea and within Judaism that in fact want to live either independent of the Romans or in opposition to the Romans. Some who believe that a war will come in which they will be dominant. Think of the people of uh, Qumran with their war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. And you have Romans who believe that in the name of civilization, it is time to bring Judaism to heal, to make it comport with the understanding that at the end of the day, the Roman Empire itself is a divine institution. Something was going to break. And if it was going to break, the place of the fracture would be Jerusalem, the very center of Judaism. The Romans sent a procurator named Gessius Florus, who was probably the worst procurator of Judea in their entire history, uh, because he only exacerbated the violence which was already in the city by hiring gangs of thugs, by sending his troops to uh, enact punitive raids, in some cases on people who had not been any part of opposition to the Romans. During this period in the year 64, sadly, Agrippa II was not even present in Jerusalem, he had gone to Egypt, to Egypt on a diplomatic mission. But Berenike fulfilled the Nazarite vow in Jerusalem under those circumstances, a vow in which for a period that is stated at the outset, usually about one month, a person agrees to keep very restrictive purity on the understanding that that purity renders a person a consecrated one, a Nazir. And after that period, one makes an offering in the temple and the offering includes the hair of one's head, which is shaved off for the purpose. So after her vow, very public, and by the way, a very common uh, practice within the Judaism of the second temple, she appeals to the procurator, that he should change his policies and he refuses. From that point, war was inevitable and it came. So how can she have any further influence? She becomes the lover of Titus, a Roman general. At that time, he is second in command to Vespasian who's in charge of the whole, and Titus is also Vespasian's son. After the destruction of the temple, Titus will come on, go on to become emperor himself after his father. Vespasian had lived for a long period, and so Titus did not become emperor until the year 79. But by that time, an understanding was very widespread that the sexual liaison he had with Berenike was going to lead to marriage. And there are complaints among Roman sources that Berenike herself goes to Rome with Titus and intervenes in legal cases. 
it appears that Judaism through Berenike is on the cusp of having the kind of influence in the Roman Empire that Christianity would have, but only several centuries later. What prevented this extraordinary plot from actually coming to fulfillment? Titus very unexpectedly died. He died of an illness. Berenike returned to be with Agrippa II, and the sun set on the Herodian project of combining authority within Judaism with power in alliance with Rome. And one more time, listeners, I'll just remind you that I focused on, you know, some of my own uh, favorite Shakespearean moments here, but the stories that swirl around the Herodians are just legion. And this book really explores them at some length. But Bruce, before we end this uh, interview, I do want to tug on a thread, namely the Jerusalem temple. In my seminary New Testament coursework and in my reading beyond, I've tended to think of the temple sometimes as simply a uh, tax booth for the Roman Empire, sometimes as the territory of the Sadducees and the priests, you know, but for fairly small stakes. But I think you demonstrate in this book that just about every faction in Herodian Palestine and really beyond Palestine had some kind of a stake in the fate and the politics of the temple in Jerusalem. So what habits should our listeners, when they're reading Josephus or Luke or John, get into when we read about and think about the temple? Physically speaking, what's vital to bear in mind is that the second temple, in all of its grandeur, was the conception and the accomplishment of Herod the Great. It was his crowning achievement as a builder and also part of his projection of legitimate power. At the same time, the Romans have a stake in the temple because, as I mentioned, the great irritation of Judaism for Rome was that Jews would not acknowledge the gods of Rome. They would not sacrifice to the emperor as others in the empire did. But what they did do was offer sacrifice in the temple for the emperor. So that from the Roman point of view, the correct accommodation within the temple is vital for the prosperity of the empire. It's very interesting that the decision to go into all out war in Judea during this period that I just described, during the time of Agrippa II and Berenike, was taken when the manager of the temple stated that he would not accept any gift from a non-Jew. That meant not accepting the gifts on behalf of the emperor. So it's not neutral territory for anyone. And then for groups within Judaism, the Pharisees had very clear understandings of what high priests should be doing and how. The Essenes had differing views of precisely how sacrifice should be conducted and indeed held that a different calendar from that being followed should be insisted upon. Jews from outside Jerusalem, like Jesus, were willing to intervene forcefully in order to change the way in which animals were provided within the temple. This is a place which is the only single institution that unites Judaism worldwide and yet which also produces a host of conflicts. Well, Bruce, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the Herods, the Caesars, or anything else as we head for the door? I think what most strikes me about them is their extraordinary dedication. Even when their dedication 
is to their own ambition, I think one has to admire their energy and their consistency. And within that as well, there is an amazing confluence between the understanding of how God works or the divine unfolds in history on the one hand and how human beings regulate their own affairs. This seems to be the grounding question of this entire period to which not only the Herodians, but those whom they touched, and they sometimes touched very forcibly, contributed as well. Bruce Chilton, thank you for coming back on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. It's my pleasure. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is The Herods, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession from Fortress Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.